Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast. I've got a bit of a cold, so please excuse my uh, my scratchy voice. But uh, very happy to be back in the uh, podcast chair after visiting the Purdue Boilermakers last week. Had a great visit with uh, with my son there, and the Boilermakers won. And uh, unfortunately, they lost on Sunday against uh, Chris Newmarker's uh, Ohio State, whatever they are, Buckeyes, whatever they are. Uh, but Chris was kind not to bring it up in uh, the intro to today's podcast. But uh, onward, boiler up, hammer down, let's go. Anyway, our podcast today, uh, we've got a couple of great interviews with for you, rather. Uh, I'll speak later on with In of Heart CEO Dave Wilson, David Wilson. Uh, he has a, a great career that uh, that started in larger company. He started a startup, moved to larger companies, and then back into the startup world. Uh, it's a familiar path. But uh, David brought some uh, great insights on those moves, some advice. And uh, I thought toward the end, when I asked him sort of the difference in, in job responsibilities, I liked his answer to that. So uh, I hope you enjoy that interview. Before that, Chris and I spoke with uh, Brad Estes, who's the CEO of Cyto, I'm sorry, Cytex Ortho. Cytex Ortho won a pitch contest at AAOS. So we'll talk about Cytex Ortho's uh, approach. And why it's so important uh, for uh, for younger people who are increasingly being sort of steered toward uh, hip replacement, perhaps before they need them or should get them. So uh, we'll talk with Brad about that. So before that, before we begin the podcast episode, I'd like to remind you that Device Talks Boston is happening on May 1st and 2nd. You're still uh, eligible for our early bird rate, so don't wait to uh, to save yourself a couple hundred bucks. Go to boston.devicetalks.com. To register, we've got a, a, a growing agenda up there, growing speaker list up there. I'll be adding more and more, so uh, make sure you don't miss that. Uh, it's a great show, and I uh, would love to meet you all in person. And of course, we have another Device Talks Tuesday coming up this Tuesday with uh, Confluent. If you go to devicetalks.com, you can find out more information about that. All right, without any further delay, I think I've covered all the things I need to cover. Let's get this podcast started. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. My gosh, it is like I'm looking out the window of my home office. It's like 40s and sunny in Minneapolis. And I always appreciate these, these weather reports you provide on our podcast that really, you know, can be heard at any time at midnight. Yet people want to know what the weather is in Minneapolis at 4 p.m. on a Thursday, 3 p.m. on a Thursday. Yeah. Sorry, Central Time. 3 p.m. on a Thursday. It's a good, you know, it's a good time to you know take the you know take the dog for a walk or something and listen. To device talks weekly exactly that's what i think i think exactly. that's the best thing to do right not right now though let's finish this recording yeah, okay we gotta get this done yeah and you still also need to get a dog I might... you don't have a dog but yeah yeah it's true <laughs> i can't walk the cat the cat's no, just difficult no. that, that'll get you a reputation in the neighborhood i was channeling you man i mean i know you, you walk the dog do you still i haven't noticed you doing any videos on linkedin lately of, you know uh, i posted i posted a few videos of my dog and they were they, they were not well received that I was a little offended because my dog's adorable. Yeah. I'm like, I'm posting a 
video of my dog walking in the woods. How is this not viral? You broke but, a boundary. You broke a LinkedIn boundary. I think I did. I think I did. People like Tom's just pandering now. Right. It's pathetic. We're here He's... for this is LinkedIn. We're here for business. No dog. Other Don't... people post their dogs, and they anyway. I, yeah. I've let it go. Obviously, yeah. I'm not right. that upset about it. But you Daisy... sound like you've let it go. I think we're good. I, we're <laughs> I <good>. absolutely have. <laughs> I'm good. I'm at peace with it. My dog's adorable. I love her. That's all I need to know. But, uh, well, we've got a guest here who's endured this nonsense for far yes. too long. Yes. <laughs> Brad Estes, welcome to the, uh, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, now, Chris, you, yeah. uh, you stopped, you, you invited Brad, you, you've been covering his story. So why don't you, uh, bring our listeners up to date? Yeah, we invited, you know, I, uh, I reached out to Brad because, uh, last week we were just, uh, you know, we, we didn't have people in person at, uh, AOS, uh, 2024 in San Francisco, but we were just covering all the news coming out of it. And, uh, and Brad's, uh, company, Cytex Ortho won the inaugural Ortho pitch technology competition at uh, AOS uh, 2024. So uh, yeah, congrats, Brad. And thanks for coming on here with us. Yeah, I appreciate that. That was, that was a really fun event, kind of surprisingly fun event for me, but um, but we walked away with a win. So um, so pretty, pretty cool for our entire team. Do you have a, a sense of how many other companies, uh, how many you were competing with? Um, I didn't at the time, um, you know, we, um, they announced it while I was, while I was there that they had over 40 entry entries into the contest. And then they kind of funneled it down, you know, from July when it first opened down until December, when they announced the four finalists and, you know, we made it through the, the Academy surgeons and their technical committees and all that stuff. And, and it was just four at the, at the end, I got to pitch live at double AOS. That was pretty cool. That's fantastic. I mean, tell you know, you know, tell tell us a little bit more, you know, about the uh, the technology. I mean, just just reviewing what it was. It looked like some really cool tech. Yeah. So so we we're basically targeting those patients who are too early for a hip replacement because um, they're young, they're active, and they'll wear out their implant multiple times in their lifetime if they want to keep that active lifestyle. Yeah. And um, you know, we we have in, we have technology that can basically restore the surface of their joint. Um, so we're restoring both the form, which means the anatomy and the congruity in the congruity of the joint, but we're also restoring it functionally. And we're doing it in a way that's friendly to the biology and the joint. People have done that before with with different types of products and different types of materials. But what we're doing is a, doing it in a way so that we. Um, are friendly to the cells, tissue development, and the implants absorbable. So every time it goes away, and the patient's left with their own tissues. How does that work? I mean, what's yeah. the what's the underlying te- <laughs> technology? I mean, I that think sounds easy. Uh, I mean, I could do it. I, I'm sure. I yeah. mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm going to get to work on that right now. <laughs> I think I'm thinking has something to. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you've got this really cool background of. Um, of, of the of like I think it's electro electron microscope view yeah, of, of a, your of, of your one material. of our materials in, yeah. in the implant yeah and, and it yeah. looks like so yarn just, like braided you know it is. so so we took a textile based approach and this this came out of duke university when, when i was at duke you know a long time ago i was in the okay. department of orthopedic surgery there um doing my phd work with with another guy and then um and then the, the other founder was our professor at the time and uh, we were working on this 3d woven um, construct and and we're actually weaving in three dimensions if you can picture that it's really hard to imagine that but instead of just traditional x and y basket type weaving we're also weaving in that in that z or third dimension as well and wow. so so what that does conceptually is by controlling the the materials 
and the the spacing in all three of those directions, um, you can start to dial in the mechanical properties of the tissues you're trying to replace in your body. And, and so that's what we did here. So, you know, um, one of the co-founders, Frank Mutos, had an ex, his expertise is in textiles. And um, that's what he did for his PhD dissertation. I was working on cell-based stuff at the time. And, and basically, our first paper was in Nature, and it showed that we could tune the structure to match the native properties of articular cartilage without, without any compromise wow. of the ability to form, to form tissue in the joint. And that kind of started us, on our, started us out on our journey with that, that discovery. And so that's kind of the hallmark feature of the implant. There's some other things to it, too, but that was kind of our secret sauce and what, what got us going. And would you say the, the implant uh, is absorbed or what is it is it designed to provide a, a relief for a certain amount of time and then to be replaced again or is it yeah, it sounds like is a, it break down and then become what I'm what I'm, some other new yeah, what I'm hearing it tissue. has the physical properties of cartilage and then you know so it's giving you that that support that you need and then it dissolves over time as like the native yeah. cartilage grows in yeah yes yeah. so so from day one when we implant it we, we both restore the form of the joint meaning the anatomy as I mentioned, but then functionally it works from day one too. So the mechanical properties of the joint are restored from day one. And people have done that before with artificial materials that are meant to be permanent. Um, so, so that wasn't anything new. What we added to the yeah. equation was the ability to, to, to absorb over time and keep that functionality. And so, so as cells come in, attach to the implant, and then start to make tissue, this tissue, we've shown this tissue to be functional in all our preclinical animal studies. And we've taken animal studies out to, to a year now, which is at what FDA demands for, for clinical trials. And so we, we've done that, and we've shown that as the implant absorbs, we don't lose the form or we don't lose the functionality of the joint. So it's, so it's pretty cool. So and we thought that's what would happen from our benchtop testing and our publications, but we showed that in our preclinical animal models as well. And what kind of material is it? Is it like a polymer or what? Yeah, it's, it's actually a well-known polymer. It's not a secret what we're using. It's an absorbable polyester called polycaprolactone. Okay. Sutures are made from it. There's some bone plugs that are made from it. It's not, you know, it's not super common in orthopedics, but but it's used and F, it's got a good track record with FDA. So it's something they recognize and something they're familiar with. Yeah, so like it's not exotic. It's something we're used to using in the body, and it's got a it's got a track record. And <laughs> right, and, and we tried multiple materials. We tried non-absorbable materials. Um, we tried other biologics. We even tried silk. You know, stuff like that. That's that's pretty cool. But at the end of the day. Um, we, we picked this one because of its safety profile, its biocompatibility. It, it absorbs so slowly, it gives the body ample time to make that functional tissue matrix in and around it as it absorbs. Yeah. And, um, and so that was, that was why we chose that material. My gosh, when you talk about like weaving the material, I mean, what scale is that? that at? <laughs> I mean, is this, is this, I mean, is this like micron level or? It's it's pretty good. I mean, on the order of yeah. I mean, these yarns are you know, several hundred microns in diameter. You know, wow. and you know, so they're, they're yarns. They're multi-filamented yarns, um, and we've spec those, and we we've controlled the sourcing of those things, and and had to manufacture them. You can't just go and order those up from Amazon, of course. So we had right, to, yeah. <laughs> we had to figure out how to make those and and you know climb those manufacturing hurdles, but we were able to do that. So where are you in, in product development and testing? So we are, um, we're gearing up for human clinical trials right now. And um, we're, huh. we're approaching a phase one trial, which is, which is a safety trial. It's an IDE study. 
And um, we are working on our final documentation right now as we speak to get that started. So FDA will receive a big packet of thousands of pages in the, within the next week to, to get that going. We have a clinical trial um, already um, being negotiated with Washington University in St. Louis. They're going to perform the first trial for us with our, our clinical advisors. They're just fantastic and, and experts in hip preservation. Um, they're going to lead that trial. So it'll be 15 patients and we'll get some human clinical data here pretty soon. And are, you're, you're, are you targeting patients who need pain relief but aren't eligible for hip replacement or those who would be getting a hip replacement? It, it's the former. It's the, it's those younger patients. It, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, young patients and they're, and they're, 20s and 30s that that have some kind of disease and some a lot of times we label it pre-arthritic disease but these patients are headed towards a total hip replacement in probably seven to eight years and um, our surgeons look at it and go i've got nothing for that patient right now but they need help and so and so one of our surgeons you know called it called it benign neglect you know they'll go into the joint um, they will relieve whatever is causing the damage, but then they're they're stuck yeah. with these lesions inside the joint that that really don't have any solutions. And we know that they're going towards you know, deterioration, degradation. This joint's going to start falling apart, and they're they're on that fast track for a total hip replacement. So so that, that's really the patient that we're targeting to begin they're with. They're just too early in in their lives to to get hardware in there, and you know so yeah. Yeah, that's tough. And and, that, and that's the problem right now. I mean, if you look at the data right now, you know, 50% of the total hip replacements are are patients under the age of 65. That's not good. 28% yeah. are the under the age of 55. That's not good either. And then what we're seeing from insurance data is that, you know, in those younger age categories, 35 to 44 year olds, those are growing at a 14% growth rate year over year. 45 to 54 year olds are going at a 25% growth rate. And then 55 to 64 year olds, that's over a 40% growth rate in those patient populations. It's and interesting what's mind, causing those trends is just like we're living crazy. longer or, or we're not, we're you know, not, crazy we're, we're not taking patients. Cell phones, <laughs> damn it. Yeah. No, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, those patients were never intended to get a hip replacement. And yet that's what's driving this large market right now. And, and, Orthopedic surgeons can't even keep up with the demand of it, and and that that's a problem. And so that this is a patient population that definitely needs a solution. So we're starting out with that that pre-arthritic patient that's heading towards a total joint replacement because there's nothing for that patient. Um, but then what we want to do is start to incorporate some of those those earlier osteoarthritis patients, you know, kind of kind of early to intermediate osteoarthritis, and see if we can reverse the disease and get these patients back on their feet rather than just having them wait through chronic pain and disability for seven or eight years while they're waiting for a total hip replacement. Like yeah. that kind of sucks for a patient. Totally. Yeah. Do, do you think historically these, these are people who have just, just endured and not sought any sort of relief? Is it just that folks are becoming more aware of options and they're going to the doctor sooner? And that's why we're seeing these numbers of cases surge or, or to Chris's point, is there actually something going on that, we think is degra- is degrading our body faster than yeah, it used to. It's it's a good question. I don't know the answer for it. I don't know if anybody really knows the answer of why. I mean, it could be lifestyle, it could be environment, it could be obesity. And, you know, there's a lot of factors yeah. that play in there. And um, but we know that's what's driving. I think other thing we're seeing right now too is you know there there are better materials for joint replacements. I mean, if you look at the major major strategics out there, I mean they they have products that they tout for more longevity. They have 
better better surface bear, better bearings for their surfaces and you know so they're they're saying that we can use these from younger patients and, I, and i've talked to the patients i talked to a, a 38 year old recently who had a total hip replacement and he said brad it it sucks he said, you know, I kind of I kind of bought into it that why not just do it now? Why not just go ahead and do it and get back to your active lifestyle? But he said it was the exact opposite of what I was promised, because instead of going and doing all the running and the exercise and the, the rock climbing and all that I, I was doing, now I'm on a bike, I'm swimming, I can't I can't go whitewater rafting, I can't, you know, do these wow. trails in the mountains. Oh, and he goes, I bought into it, but it's not true. It's, it's, it's like, if I want that implant to last 15, 20 years, you know, and think about him, I mean, at 20 years, he's going to be 58, you know, that's still yeah. pretty young. And so, you know, he's going to have to get, you know, another procedure and that second procedure is not nearly as efficient and the results aren't nearly as good, but, but these patients are starting to, to buy into it a little bit. And I think that's driving it a little bit too. In the past, it's just been... You know, they go, you know, you see the, the orthopedic surgeon, they take an x-ray and, you know, I've, you know, it looks like you have some, some osteoarthritis in the joint. Here's some ibuprofen, you know, take, take some NSAIDs, do some PT. And when you can't stand it anymore, come back and we'll, we'll, we'll get you on the list for a total joint replacement. And, and that, that's a terrible proposition, but they don't even do that many studies on these, these patients right now. So, and some of those studies, some of the data that we have say that on average, that time frame from that first visit to the orthopedic surgeon to that total hip replacement is seven years. Wow. I mean, think about that for a second. Seven years with suffering, with pain, suffering, you're more and more disabled, and then you just can't stand it anymore, and you just go ahead and do it. But but there are, there's marketing pushes right now to do it younger and do it earlier, and that's some of what we're seeing here in the market. And when Thanks. did Cytex Ortho start? Uh, I like to say we're an old startup company. So, uh, Medtech has we, that. I mean, that's, uh, we do. I mean, we, we spun the technology at Duke University around 2010 and, wow. um, and started with nothing outside the university. I had one foot at Duke University and one foot at, at Cytex Ortho, um, for, for several years before we left, for me and the, the other co founder, Frank Mutos, left Duke permanently in like around 2016. So I, I'd like I like to say the first four or five years we figured out all the wrong way to do cartilage repair, and um, <laughs> and and it wasn't until you know we in 2016 we 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 had a grant and to do a do a study with a um, in a large animal model and just and it was in the hip and we just to make a long story short we just hit it out of the park and that kind of set us on our journey of saying this is what was possible with our with our implant. Oh, that's great. I mean. I, it is interesting. I mean, like when we when we like look around, and say like, what kind of startup should we cover in this industry? I think I think medtech is one of the few industries where it's like a ten year old company, you know, even a even a you know twelve fourteen year old company. You're like like it's 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 a startup because it just takes so long sometimes to figure things out and you know get through all the validation and regulatory processes. But tell us a little bit more. I mean, my gosh, this is a this is a journey. I mean, you know and. It- it has been. I, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. Somebody told me about that time. There was a you know a, a somebody in the local community here who had his own company and done a lot of work in in biotech and and he he, he said, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, why not?" And he goes, "He goes, he says, I don't think it's possible to take a, an IDE PMA product to market from A to Z 
you can never fund it. You'll never be successful. And I was like, wow. geez, thanks that for was the encouragement. That was encouraging. Yeah. That. <laughs> thanks, pal. And, Did he at um, least buy you a beer when he said that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. And I'm <laughs> no. like, you know, I, and I was like, you're crazy. And I didn't believe him for a second. I kind of took it as a personal challenge at that point. I was like, okay, yeah, you're okay like- we'll see if we can do it. And, um, and, and I, and I, over the years, as we've kind of, you know, doubled down on our commitment to provide solutions for patients, I, I totally get where he was coming from. I mean, this is, this, this journey is full of, you know, swamps and landmines and, you know, people shooting at you and, and it's just, it's, it's extremely hard. And, um, and we, we, we've basically gotten this far almost totally on NIH grant funding. Wow. And, and so wow. we've raised to date, we've raised over $19 million on NIH grant funding to do this work. And I, and, wow. and I think that's, that speaks tremendously to the technology and, and it's been vetted and validated through NIH, um, you know, just thoroughly. And so that really, really puts a, you know, I don't know, un- underscores the science associated with our implant. Um, but, but it's also the absolutely slowest way to do product development. And so, Wow. You know, before I was at Duke, I was at I was at Medtronic. I was actually in the spine spine industry for a while, um, and oh. um, you know, having gone through you know spine in its heyday in the '90s, and um, yeah, um, and so it, it's um, yeah, with those budgets, you can go a lot faster. Um, with with grant budgets, you have to go really slowly and be really methodical, and and your every decision's more weightier because of the way it's funded. Was there anything particularly um, specific about your approach or your technology or your targeted audience that made you made it easier for you to secure NIH grant funding? Or is this something that other startups could do if they're willing to put in the time and the pace that goes goes along with this? Is there a defense contract thing going on or something like military, anything that's sort yeah, of Yeah, I mean, we went the, the SBIR, STTR route through through NIH. Um, we, we tried some DOD funding at times, and, you know, we weren't we weren't successful getting that type of funding. Um, I think it you, you have to have great technology. That's part of the equation. Um, yeah. And then you have to be able to write a great grant. And, um, and, and during my PhD work, I trained with probably one of the best, um, a guy by the name of Farsh Gilak. He's a professor at Washington University right now. And, and I learned everything from him. And, you know, he's, he's incredible at writing grants, incredible at communicating. And, um, and so we, and then, then the third thing is you have to have just incredible perseverance. And so you have to know that you, you have technology and your science is solid. Um, but then you just have to keep hammering on it with NIH submissions. And, and if the grant's good and the, and, and this technology is good, you'll get it funded. And so it's just, a, it's an exercise and just, I, I'm going to be super diligent and super perseverant and we're going to get this funded and I'm going to wait you out. So, wow. So we, we were just, uh, dogmatic in that approach. Is the flip side then that hopefully because, you know, there, it was just so thorough and there, there was, just you know, so much examination of the science through this whole process. That now that you're heading into into this regulatory process, that you know, that things th- does that help make things like feel really, really, you know, really tight, like really, really well put together. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that that same determined spirit that we had, and 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 
and you know, I have an incredible team too. I mean, there are, you know, four full-time PhD scientists, engineers who, who work on my wow. team and they're just all incredibly talented, incredibly gifted. Um, and we, we've, we've taken that same approach towards manufacturing. We've taken the same, same approach towards regulatory. Um, and, um, and, you know, and so at the end of the day, the documentation that we're providing at FDA, I, you know, we've checked all the boxes. So I, I don't see any reason why we can't start this clinical trial, you know, pretty soon here. You know, FDA is always great at throwing curveballs. I mean, you guys know that, you know, you, yeah. you, you think you, you think you got it all squared sure. away and you got it all lined up and all of a sudden here comes that big curveball you can't hit. So, you know, I hope that our prep preparation and, and the work that we put in, um, you know, gets us over that hump quickly, but, but we'll see. I'll, I'll know in a couple of weeks here. You know, just one one more thing that I think would be a, a really good parting question would just be like, okay, you know, just just after hearing you tell the story of the whole this whole process that's gone in you here, I mean, so I mean, what advice would you give to someone, you know, coming to you, you know, with with, with an idea who's you know w- wants to get you know started in this? I mean, would you be like that that guy years ago? <laughs> or- <laughs> Like don't, <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't do it, Ron. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I think I think it's got to be your passion. I mean, if you're yeah. if you're not totally sold on what you're doing, and that you, you know, we're, we're driven to help that patient. I mean, I mean, we get we we still get comments and emails from patients all the time. I'm 37. I'm putting off a hip replacement as long as possible. I will be first in line to try it if this is allowed. I mean, that, those are the kind wow. of emails that we get right now. And yeah, so, right. so you've got to be willing to, you know, all right, you know, it's going to be hard. Nobody's going to make, nobody's going to give you anything. And you just have to be willing to to just persevere through just solving tons of problems. And and if if you have a dream and you you have the solution for something and you want to make it happen, go for it. That's what I would tell them. Awesome. That yeah, sounds like sounds better. better yeah. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Brad Essies, thanks for uh, joining All us right, on the podcast. Pleasure. Good talking to you. All right, now I can play my interview with David Wilson. He's the CEO of Innofart. Uh, David has an interesting start into the medtech industry. He wasn't a biomedical engineer to start, but uh, he became one after a, a, a moment of clarity, and uh, we'll get into that story and his career uh, that had led him to become global president of a few large businesses and, uh, of course, the CEO of a smaller startup. We'll talk about that path and the difference between the two. Once again, uh, don't forget to join us at Device Talks Boston. It's happening on May 1st and 2nd at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Go to boston.devicetalks.com to register and do it before our early bird rate expires uh, in just a couple of weeks. Well, David Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Tom. Thanks for having me. You've got a, a great career I want to cover. I love folks who start off as engineers and find their way into the executive suite. I want to find out about that journey. And then, of course, uh, find out about your company that you're leading now, which is in a really critical space. So let's get to the big question first. How'd you find your way into the medical device industry? So I went to Auburn University and studied mechanical engineering. And my first job out of the university was with Chicago Bridge and Iron Company. And one day when oh. I was uh, using a blowtorch to melt ice off of a uh, piece of steel, I thought, well, I'm enjoying this, but maybe uh, 
I have another purpose. And I was aware of the emerging field of biomedical engineering. It was not what it is today. And there was a program at UAB in Alabama. And I literally went to a truck stop, got through to the dean of engineering and was able to broker a, a research stipend. And I <laughs> decided to pack up my Honda Accord and head uh, from Damascus, Maryland, south. And um, was glad I did because biomedical engineering really is a, a union of medicine and engineering to to help people. And I've been at it for 30 years and I feel very blessed. It was a good, a good decision. Bridges and roads are really important, but uh, it was a good change for me. I need to unpack that. Why did this momentous conversation happen at a rest stop? Were you just driving home from this experience of, at work and saying enough is enough? No, I, uh, I actually was doing very well at CBI and being a conscientious person. I, I said, I better tell these folks that my passion is, is somewhere else. And so this was before cell phones. I'll show my age here. And uh, the pay phone was available at a, at a rest stop. And I had a lunch break. And uh, I made a phone call. And okay. uh, it's good to be proactive. Yeah. No, you, you, uh, you, I forget. I lived during that era as well. And yeah, I had a phone booth at a nearby coffee shop. That was my, uh, where I had many important conversations with a future employer. So I remember those experiences. So talk a bit about your work. What were you able to negotiate with them? And did it just lead to your studying in the biomedical area? And again, how did you sort of settle on that? Did you just kind of spin a wheel or, or did you have some personal connection with medical research? No, it was uh, the program at UAB, University of Alabama at Birmingham, is connected with a huge global medical center there. It was really ahead of its time, and they just had a great faculty. And I, I connected with the dean of engineering and told him why I was interested. I had contemplated, like a lot of engineers, maybe going to medical school. And they were looking for research students to work with the Department of Surgery. And I had an opportunity to focus on growth factors, cytokines, if you will, for wound healing. And I wasn't really sure where that would lead at the time, but I knew it was moving more toward my passion, which was applying, you know, my life really to helping doctors uh, develop better tools. And so uh, sometimes things just work out and it, it lined up and the time was right. That's great. And what was your first uh, your first job in the medical device industry? So I joined a startup company called Odigen, which be later became Cohesion in the Bay Area. David Sierra, who graduated ahead of me, was the CEO there working with an otologist, Rodney Perkins, who was a real innovator, worked on cochlear implants and a lot of other you know, hearing aid devices, et cetera. And the concept was that we were going to take collagen. We had a partnership with Collagen Corporation at the time, Collagen, Vibrant, and Thrombin, and come up with implants to help with otologic needs like tympanic membranes, nerve conduit, et cetera. And my research was in that area. So I was the third, actually the second employee, you know, lab coat. If you were going to do it, you had to invent it and make it. So it was really sort of an extension of the university. And it was fun. Ultimately, I didn't stay there very long. We did get a product that made it to commercial use in Europe, but I, I was on to my next stop after that. And it looked like your first job at a, a larger company. Was that with, with Cordis? Yes. I joined Cordis. Another classmate of mine was there in the advanced R&D group, and he said, hey, have you thought about Cordis? And I looked into it. Didn't know at the time that Cordis was about to be acquired by Johnson & Johnson. So I joined 
just before the acquisition, which was ultimately kind of a hostile takeover, which proved to be a good opportunity for me. I had no skin in the game on the old Cordis. I had an appreciation. Cordis was amazing. It was vertically integrated. We compounded resin, extruded tubing, made our own stents. I mean, it, it was all in one place. J&J acquired Cordis for the balloon technology to deliver the stent, which they had all the original patents on. And so my career took off from there. We became part of J&J, and I, I spent two decades there. Very, very proud of my time at Johnson & Johnson. Were you still at engineering at that point? Had you moved on to sales? And let's talk a bit about your transition from engineering to where sure. you are today. So I joined Cordis as an engineer, too, and was in the advanced R&D group. And when the acquisition happened, all of the focus turned to the coronary space. Cordis had four companies, electrophysiology, neurology, or, or neurovascular, peripheral vascular, and coronary. And about a year into it, a new leader, Bob Cordini, came in to start the endovascular program. We acquired a company called Nightingale Devices and Components. And I was selected as the project leader to come up with the first laser cut nickel titanium stent. And we had a lot of success with that. We got the product to market very quickly, built out the portfolio for a variety of anatomical indications. I was promoted to director. I had a leader who said, either David can run the department or go to a different department, but you know, he and I don't need to have the same job. So he graciously moved on and I took over the group, which doesn't wow. happen all the time. <laughs> and we expanded from there. I, I gained in responsibility at a group in New Jersey, a group in Florida, and a group in the Netherlands. Had another great leader, Martin Madden, who came in uh, as the VP. And when he was pulled away to go into orthopedics, he named me his backfill. And as part of that, I had an opportunity to go to Columbia University for my MBA. And I was told, and this answers an earlier question, that the view of Johnson & Johnson at the time is they wanted more diversity of background in the senior level positions, you know, understanding technology, really understanding R&D, not just sales and marketing was important. And so I was VP of R&D while I went to school. And when I finished that program, I, I was moved into a sales assignment. I ran the, the West Coast of our endovascular division and then moved back in house for more of a, a marketing general management role and eventually left and went to, went to Ethicon in, in a new role. But it was really forward thinking, I think, on the part of leadership at J&J &J to try to pull capable people along into the senior ranks, because historically, especially in the pharmaceutical group, it was really more of a sales and marketing kind of background to get to the senior levels, but they wanted to get mm -hmm. more technology people. And I was all too happy to do it. It was a great, a great move, a great opportunity. But, you know, really, they said to me, if you, you know, if you go into sales and you don't like it, you can come back in. But I, I had more fun in sales than I think that I've ever had. So uh, <laughs> different, different kind of accountability, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun and a great opportunity for me. What is that transition like? Not everyone's the same, obviously, and people have different strengths and different desires to do what they do for work. But I think many engineers would, would find the idea of, of leaving engineering to be, to be difficult and to move into sales perhaps even more difficult. The transition worked well for you. What were some tips? Are there tips? Is there advice that you give to folks who are in the position today that you found yourself in 20 or so years ago? And, and what does that advice sound like? My general advice, and I've heard others say this, so maybe I'm borrowing it, but you know, always say yes. If you're in a, if you trust your leadership and you trust that you've chosen well for where you're applying your talent, when opportunities come, say yes. And when I was presented the opportunity to move on the GM path, I said yes. 
they gave me a little bit of a safety net, but I knew I'd be accountable. And then I had the courage to do it because what I've learned in my career is that it's really all about people. We always say that the people in the company are the greatest asset. And if you can connect individually with people, if you can establish the right performance expectations for teams, great things can happen. And when I went into sales, I knew the technology and the doctors loved talking to me, but I was able to really understand what was going on with the salespeople, you know, good hires that they had made, bad hires that they had made. And I was able to lean into that and just improve the overall talent we had in the group. And, and we actually became sales division leader of the year during my tenure there. And it was really just focusing on people and also being authentic. I said, look, guys, I'm going to learn sales from you, but I, I know the products really well and I'm, I'm here to support you. So I think you, you can get outside of your comfort zone if you stay to the basics and, and really just sort of be where you are at the time. And, and enjoy it. And did you see uh, becoming a, a worldwide president as you were a few times according to your LinkedIn? Was that a goal for you? Did you did you see that this was a path you wanted to take, or did you just keep saying yes and you ultimately found yourself in a leadership position? I knew that I liked to have decision making authority and control over mm-hmm. all aspects of a project. And when you're an R and D leader. You're accountable for everything, but you don't own everything. And so you spend a lot of time cajoling manufacturing to prioritize your project and finance to fund it and, you know, regulatory and quality to take appropriate risks to move forward. And, and for me, spending time with all those functions and the opportunity to influence them in a good way naturally leads you to want to be a worldwide president. Now, the piece that's different is you also have a lot of accountability for sales results. And so. I think having experience in sales, understanding generally how, how marketing folks think is important as well, because you have the total business, but the ability, I'm very goal oriented. So the ability to focus on, you know, top objectives and innovation, top objectives in the current year, understanding that companies have to have a, a track record of performance year after year. It's all about timing and planning and strategic planning was just very attractive to me. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I welcomed it and was was honored when I had my first opportunity to to, to achieve that level in J&J. And you will, will last last look at your your background, your your time at uh, as worldwide president in Cordis from 2015 to 2017, where you assisted in in the turnaround of the company when it was acquired by Cardinal Health from J&J. How a unique an experience was that? Please kind of set the scene. What situation were you coming into? And I'd love to just understand some of the steps you took and your team took to turn things around? Sure. Well, I my first worldwide president role was in plastic surgery at Mentor. And I was there for five years, loved it. I took the company from a singular focus on aesthetic medicine into reconstructive surgery. We did a lot of innovation on 510K products for postmastectomy reconstruction. And that was really just bringing in some R&D talent and training the sales force to find their way to the big hospital, not just the aesthetic medicine, private practice offices. Our group leader, Shlomi Nachman, contacted me about Cordis again, where I had started as an engineer too, and said, look, confidentially, I had to sign some paperwork. Uh, we're going to be divesting the company to Cardinal Health, and they're looking for a leader to come with and would like you to weigh in on whether you're interested in that. And I had an opportunity to go to Cardinal and meet George Barrett, the CEO, and Don Casey, who was uh, CEO of the med tech segment. And I thought, you know, ironically, 
Cordis was my entree into J and J and it may be my, my exit out of. And uh, <laughs> I thought, you know, my plan at J and J was I'll give it five years. And I was there, you know, four X that. And I thought, well, maybe now's the time. And so it was bittersweet. You know, I could have stayed at J and J, but I decided to go. I found out ultimately it wasn't a great fit, unfortunately for Cardinal Health, which is a great company. Their stock is, I just looked over a hundred dollars. You know, they, they've stuck to their knitting and they do really well, but the risk profile in, in the cardiovascular space was a bit out of sync with where they normally had been. And so they, they divested and it's with private equity now. But for me, for personal growth, you know, we had to stand up an international business because Cardinal really was not a global company. So offices and, you know, all of the order to cash systems, et cetera. So I, I really had an opportunity to, to participate and lead, you know, really building out a global company within Cardinal Health doing a lot of explanation of what the heck Cardinal bought, uh, really influencing <laughs> our folks in Japan who had never heard of Cardinal Health and, you know, those in China who had to stay on board. So it was, it was a different type of role for me. I think the other thing is Cardinal at the time really didn't invest a very large percentage of sales towards organic R&D. So the mission was really M&A, L&A, a lot of the licensing deals. And so I really focused on importing products that were developed externally. We brought in a, you know, a balloon portfolio from India, brought back in drug eluting stents from Israel. And so, you know, that was a lot of my time at Cordis was, even though we did a lot of acquisitions, it was really about line extensions and, you know, trying to build on big acquisitions. This was really in licensing technologies, which was good for me. It was different. And uh, I had done some of that at J&J when I was at Ethicon. But after a while, I, I had a call, you know, about another opportunity. And I I decided to move again, but no, no regrets at Cardinal. Good learning experience taught me a lot about, you know, really thinking about fit and analyzing, you know, whether or not, you know, some, some marriages are not the best marriages and that, that wasn't the best one for Cardinal. We'll get into Innovite right now, but then you moved on to President Global Plasma at Hematics. Anything to add about that and, and give us just a minute on that. And then I'd love to understand how this opportunity came to be and why you decided to return to a startup. Sure. Humanetics came along, you know, really, you know, you, in your career, you build out a network of people that you admire who, who typically are, are helping to lead you in the right direction. I was connected with Chris Simon at Humanetics. He had left McKinsey and gone to Humanetics as a CEO. And the person that connected me was, you know, a trusted advocate. And I really, you know, connected with Chris about a great opportunity to, to grow the stock at Humanetics and really get on an innovation pathway. The challenges and opportunities there were, you know, it's really a large piece of capital equipment. You make the money off of disposables and you're really working with a procurement organization and, you know, negotiating on pennies, very high millions of, of units for a global plasma collection and just really understanding the full supply chain from the fractionators, the collectors, you know, everybody's individual business model was great. Along the way, after several years there, I had a phone call about Innovart, my current opportunity, and uh, I guess we're going to talk about that next. That's great. So uh, let's. We had the phone call. Is the first thing you think of when a startup calls? Is your first answer going to be yes? Is it something you need to be kind of talked into? Just uh, walk me through that process of what led you to take this job. Well, I have a good. I have a good balance of of confidence and humility. And uh, <laughs> when I when I got the call, I said. I've done a lot of cardiovascular. Uh, I've never done structural heart. I can learn a new space, but you know, are you sure you have the right person? 
And the, the recruiter said, absolutely. Let me tell you a little bit about the company. And the story was incredibly compelling about the founder, about the board, about the technology. I quickly flew over to Milan and had dinner with a majority of the board members, really was impressed with them. And, you know, frankly, I wanted to be a CEO. And uh, the idea of going back to where I started with startups was not frightening, but I knew what I was getting into. And, you know, I've been reminded at how nimble and creative one can be, especially in a post-COVID supply chain constrained environment. And, uh, you know, we have to fight like heck every day. But if you choose the right team and you have the right technology, it usually can be a winner. We still have a lot to do. But I was convinced that the timing was right for me. And I said, yes. And uh, and here I am. All right. So give us a little bit about uh, Innovart's origins its story. It's good. You have you mentioned the offices in, in Italy. You also have, uh, do you have a Boston location or are you the Boston location or do you have offices here? We have an office in Newton in Boston. We do the, the implant valve development in Italy outside of Milan in a, in a little country town called Colorado. And we do the delivery system development here in the U.S. and in Boston. And so a bit about the company. Uh, the founder is Giovanni. We call him Johnny. Giovanni Riccini, who spent a lot of his career in Europe and Switzerland focused on surgical valve implantation. He became very interested in transcatheter mitral valve products. The company he was with at the time wasn't interested in that. He was able to exit and really, you know, he talks about like a lot of founders building the first prototypes in his kitchen. And in 2010, he filed for his first patent. And he found a great investment group, Genextra, in Italy, who believed in him. And in 2015, we started our SRL in, in Italy. Now, I joined in 2022, so they were at it for a while before me. He was able to make it to a clinical study with transapical delivery, so really driven more by cardiovascular surgery, cardiothoracic surgeons, beginning in 2020, enrolled five patients uh, right into COVID by 2022. and. I joined and, and my focus has really been the next mode of delivery, which is transeptal delivery. And we will be beginning our clinical studies later here in the first quarter in the month of March. That's our target. Explain to me and to our, some of our listeners who may not know, what is the difference in, in, the, uh, in the delivery approach? How is it done differently? So transapical is a short, relatively rigid delivery catheter. You puncture through the patient's side into the lower lobe on the left ventricle of the heart, and you go directly against blood flow across the, the mitral plane and you deploy the implant. So it does require, you know, suturing and repairing the the heart, the puncture that you make. It's a bit more invasive. Certainly there are more concerns about infection, et cetera, and it, and it, and it has to be done by a cardiothoracic surgeon. Transeptal delivery, you go in on the right side of the heart through the iliac vein. And you go up into the, the right atrium, you puncture across the septum, thus the term transeptal, into the left atrium. Then you turn and you go down across the mitral plane in an anti-grade fashion, and you deliver, you deliver the implant. So the engineering required to go from the groin all the way, you know, into the heart across, across the septum is, is pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, I know when, when the aortic valves were worked on, first product there came to market in 2011. In early days, there was a lot of concern about placement accuracy, et cetera. That, that's all been solved now, but the real focus is on a relatively easy to use delivery system, a reasonable procedure time, and then a really durable implant that, you know, will perform. And so there are no, currently there are no products approved for transcatheter mitral valve replacement. There are clips available for something called tear, transcatheter edge to edge repair. There is a, a trans apical mitral valve product on the market in Europe, but it, it's really the next frontier. And, and mitral is a very challenging space. In fact, we've been leapfrogged now by Edwards, who just got PMA approval for a tricuspid valve. So it's been a bit over a decade since there was a, a valve approval. Tricuspid was next. And I, I think based on where a lot of companies are right now, there'll be, there'll be a product approved, a lot of companies in, in PMA studies right now in the not so distant future. And it, it's just a, a huge opportunity for a lot of patients in need. So what does that approval by Edwards mean to companies like yours moving in this, in this space as well? Does it create opportunity or create challenges or both? I think it creates opportunity. It's a very challenging financial environment right now, I think, across all sectors, as you know, and startups mm-hmm. startups are always raising money. So I think it's a confidence builder that there are new anatomies, new frontiers beyond aortic valves. So it's, it's nice to see another product being approved. It's nice to see that FDA granted early approval for them. You know, they looked probably at the uh, at the curves and the data were so compelling, they gave early approval, which I think was a bit of a surprise. I'm not an expert on that. It's just what I've read. And so I think that's great to see that there's an attitude to help technology come to market that's going to positively you know, help patients. And so Mitral's been a challenge for a lot of companies. I think there have been a lot of key learnings. Clinical study enrollment's been kind of slow based on inclusion criteria. We're uniquely positioned at our company. I think we've been able to learn from others and we have what we believe is a, a device that will be more, have more utility. We can deal with a lot of the challenges that other companies have faced. We'll see. As I said, we're going to begin in March. I feel very bullish, confident about it. So I think it's, it's great to see products being approved. I also like to see that Azim Latib from Albert Einstein School of Medicine said he thought the ASP could be around $40,000. So that's good to see for margins. You know, we'll see how it plays out. It's early days for them, but. Certainly, you know, TAVR is, is becoming more mainstream. Physicians need better, better tools and clips are great, but they do have some limitations. So I think a replacement product that can be delivered in a very minimally invasive approach for mitral valve replacement uh, is needed. And, and it's good to be in the hunt to be one of the first companies to do that. Talk a bit about your financing. I'm, I'm seeing now it looks like you raised, uh, Innovart raised 55 million of Series C in 2022 to be about two months before you joined. Did you have a hand in that at all? Or was that sewed up before you joined? Or It was sewed up just before I joined. I certainly, part of the lead investor in that is a company called Grand Pharmaceuticals based in China. And so part of that 55 had to do with a, a licensing fee. We licensed our technology to them for greater China. So mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Macau, which, you know, has been done by other companies as well. They've proven to be a really good partner. We have milestones that are earnable and certainly they took an equity position in Innovart. And so I think, you know, one of the things we've learned about China is that to get on the fast track, sometimes called the green path, it's good to be local. So I think, you know, we spend a lot of time with them 
technology transfer, you know, training them on the procedure, et cetera. So it's a real, it's a real partnership. So I, I inherited that and, you know, lead that in a joint steering committee, et cetera. Our principal investors are largely the same, mostly Italian institutions. We are in the process of doing another raise. Now I call it a series C extension due to some of the, you know, I think every company has faced a slow supply chain. So things have taken longer. And so we're looking for a bit more fuel to, to do up to 30 patients and our early feasibility work and prepare the path for filing for our global pivotal study. So certainly I look forward to having great clinical data to share as we talk to investors. Over the history of the company, we've been really successful in series A, series B, and as I said, series C, a little less than 60 million in equity invested rather evenly distributed across, you know, all of those rounds. So I feel great about it. We have a, a lean mean team with a great technology and a really bright future and a compelling space. So a lot of fun. How do those licensing deals, I mean, it, it sounds almost similar to a farmer arrangement. I know some other med techs have done it as well. I think Recor had a, a similar deal, if I'm understanding the framework correctly. But how does that factor into your fundraising today? Is it seen as a, a validation by potential investors? Is it seen as a limitation? Because that market is potentially owned by someone else, what's the feedback you're getting? You know, I think the the, the big question from investors usually is, you know, where do you hold the the IP, and what rights do other companies have that you've done licensing agreements with? And I'm quick to point out in our situation that you know, Grand Pharma didn't choose to take a board seat; they're an observer. Their rights are restricted to those four geographies around Greater China that I mentioned. We have a basically uh, a royalty, which is a, a net sales value based on their future sales, earnable milestones, et cetera. So, you know, certainly if a strategic were to come and look at us and they have a, a really solid sales force in greater China, that, that might give them a little bit of pause. But it, it's pretty commonplace, at least for the startups here. Other companies have done the same. And, you know, there's always a way to uh, to make it mutually beneficial. So. Um, it was the right move for us. And mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I think most of the questions are, are really more about, you know, where are you manufacturing the product? There are a lot of, you know, just, you know, obviously political issues between the U.S. and China at times. And so you, know, you have to remain, you know, pretty knowledgeable about how all that works out. But I, I think in general, it's not an impediment. It's, it's been a positive for us. And the fact that you have locations in Italy and the U.S., you seem to be running a, a small but global operation. How does this? Yeah. How do all these different elements sort of factor into your day to day? Well, I always talk about it as a strength. I think that you know we have a U.S. team that understands the U.S. market, understands FDA. We have a European team that understands you know Europe, Middle East, and Africa very well, and and certainly understands the CE mark process. And now we have this great you know partner in in China that understands that region certainly better than we ever could in terms of what's happening. You know, as an example, in most of the world, the real interest in the market is the transeptal delivery. But in China, they're equally interested in transapical. So there's some, you know, regional nuances that are important to have from an insight perspective. And, you know, for a small company, it just gives us a lot of reach and expertise to be globally focused. And we have a lot of time zones to deal with. We have a lot, have a lot of different <laughs> languages to deal with. I think one of the benefits of COVID is that everyone's gotten really comfortable being on camera. And yep. so, you know, work is something you do, not a place that you go to. And the ability to be on video and see faces and see expressions and have everybody be comfortable with that has been uh, really helpful in this kind of a unique company structure. 
Sure, you would have racked up some frequent flyer miles, even more. Still am, uh, still am, but uh, yeah, 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 it would yeah. be even more uh, <laughs> with airplane tickets that are a big multiple of what they what they were. Yeah, no ago. kidding. So, final question: You've got some busy times coming up ahead, but w- what do you see the next couple of years looking like for Inn of Heart? So How for, would you like to see things unfold? Yeah, our goal for this year is to enroll at least fifteen patients in our early feasibility study. That's a monthly enrollment rate of, of about. 0.4 patients per month per site, and that'll get us where we need to go. That's about 2x the rate that other companies have been able to do, but I think we'll have fewer screen outs just based on the, the adaptability and utility of our, our unique technology. So this year is really about showing that the product can be delivered transeptally, and we've done you know over 70 large animals, cadavers, et cetera. We're ready. So that's the focus, and we're also in parallel focusing on getting our IDE submission in to FDA. We'll do that late first quarter, early second quarter, really preparing for the next leg, which would be another 15 patient enrollment on into 2025, mostly in the U.S. We'd have 30 patients total. And then the third sort of work stream is focusing on manufacturing scale-up. So we can produce hundreds of devices, which will really be required for the global pivotal study. And we'd like to file the, the for the IDE for the pivotal study in the second half of 2025. So, you know, focus, focus, focus. Let's get some really good clinical data, really take care of a lot of patients, demonstrate what Saturn can do. Let's do that globally. So start in Europe and then come to the U.S. Let's, you know, really ramp up in a scalable way our supply chain, then repeat whatever testing is required to file for the IDE for the Global Pivotal and then be in a position to do that. And around that time, we'd be looking probably at another Series D raise. And, Mm -hmm. uh you know, because that's obviously a, a huge investment. So busy, but uh, having a good time, and I think focused in the in the right space for me with the right company, working with a lot of a lot of talented people. That's great. Yeah, no, I'm just curious that your companies you ran previously, you were in charge of thousands. You had quarterly or monthly things you had to account for. You had numbers to look at. You had metrics to measure. Startups, I'm sure you have the same, but it's probably a lot more fluid. How different is this experience running a company like? It's got to be different, but like, what does your day-to-day feel? It just must be a completely different universe than pulling up to a big building with lots of people in it who can who can give you data and you can measure sales just like that and such. It is. I spend a lot of time focused on cash flow. And that's different. When you're in a large company, you know, you're negotiating all the time that, you know, your operating company is more important than every other operating company and you need your lion's share of the operating budget. And here it's, you have what you have. And so trying to be wise about how you spend it, there's a lot of focus on that. And I have a great, you have a lot of the financial discipline. Certainly it's a different board makeup. When I was in hemanetics, I was in front of the board all the time, but it was a publicly traded company with a board that were not individual investors in the company per se. Here, my board basically is a group of investors. It's their money. And so understanding how they're feeling and making sure they have the information they need and the information they need to convey to their investors. It's very real, very, very tangible, which is kind of exciting. And I find that I I have a lot more time, frankly. I, I don't have all the corporate meetings that fill up the calendar. You know, you can you can kind of I never did, but you can kind of sleep your way through, sleepwalk your way through. You know, you show up and you're completely booked out and you do your work at, you know, after hours and here. Mm-hmm. Not as many meetings, and certainly that's mostly a positive. But I also find that a lot of those meetings in big companies do 
deliver a lot of great training. And so I have to be very cognizant at my startup that not everybody who works with me worked at J&J or Boston Scientific and had, you know, great training on credo values or manager in the law or how to deal with FCPA or whatever. And so you don't have a big HR department doing those kind of things. So something, you know, it's, uh, I learned from uh, Gary Pruden, you know, you, you juggle some balls, some of them are rubber balls, some of them are glass balls. You don't want to drop the glass ones. So okay. it's important <laughs> to, to identify those beyond things that you'd normally even think about, because if you don't lead it as a CEO, it typically doesn't happen. So I enjoy that challenge. That's great. I know I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate it, but I love someone who is very introspective and kind of uh, give me a look on the inside. So I appreciate your, your taking the time and, and for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you don't miss any of our future episodes of our many, many, many podcast series. We're up to nine, going to introduce 10 and 11 this year for sure, perhaps a few more. So uh, make sure you, again, subscribe to Device Talks Podcast Network and any major podcast player. You can also find all the podcasts at devicetalks.com. Uh, make sure you uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Device Talks is on YouTube. We're putting some videos up there. Uh, Kayleen Brown, our managing editor, has a couple of great podcasts that she's uh, she's putting the entire interviews up there. So it's a great way to see uh, AI meets Life Sci and some of our other podcasts. Uh, please do uh, follow me on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Also follow Kayleen and Chris, Chris as in a new marker. And of course, our other, all of our editorial staff. And uh, please connect and follow Device Talks and Mass Device as well. Once again, Device Talks Boston is happening on May 1st and 2nd. Go to boston.devicetalks.com to check out the agenda, the speaker list, and I hope you'll uh, register. We've got a, a bit of a cool networking opportunity coming up that we'll be announcing uh, soon. And I'm sure we'll make that available to folks who have already registered first. So, um, or I should say the earlier you register, the better. So just don't wait. If you're going to join us, just register now. It'd be, love, be great to see you there at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center again on May 1st and 2nd. All right. Well, uh, once again, that's the end of this podcast episode. Thanks for tuning in. My voice lasts throughout. And uh, I hope you have a great weekend and or day whenever you're listening to this. Take care, everybody. Bye.